Uh, so, all right, it is, looks like it is top of the hour. So let's just go ahead and I will, uh, I will start with a little bit of introduction. Welcome to the Torch of Progress. This is the speaker series for uh, progress studies for young scholars. Uh, that is our online uh, summer program in the history of technology for high school students. That's what uh, Progress Studies for Young Scholars is. If you want to learn more about it, you can uh, find out about it at progressstudies.school. Uh, it is a six-week course in, uh, again, in the covering mostly the history of technology and, and global living standards. It is, uh, again, aimed at the high school level, and we're really covering how did we get here to, uh, to the modern standard of living and what were the major um, innovations uh, along the way. This is inspired by the progress studies of Tyler Cowan and, and Patrick Collison, and you can learn a lot more about it um, on the website, progressstudies.school. Um, this, in this speaker series, which we're doing uh, uh, on a weekly basis, we are talking to uh, people who know a lot about global progress and also some people who are on the frontier of progress helping push things forward. Um, we've got a number of great upcoming events for you, so let me just tell you about sort of the upcoming schedule. Uh, next week on Thursday, July 2nd, we've got uh, Deirdre McCluskey. Um, uh, a uh, professor of economics and actually in many, many different uh, subjects who has some fascinating theories about uh, global progress. Uh, the week after that, uh, another very well-known professor, Joel Mokir, who's written some very interesting books uh, about the Industrial Revolution. That will be on Wednesday, July 8th. Um, after that, we are going to talk to a biotech founder, uh, Noor Siddiqui. She is also a Teal Fellow. Um, and uh, has a really interesting uh, story. And so uh, that will be one of our interviews with somebody on the frontier of progress and, and pushing things forward. That is Wednesday, July 15th. Uh, and the week after that, Anton Howes, one of my favorite writers about uh, history of the Industrial Revolution and, and just published a book on the history of the Royal Society for Arts. That is Wednesday, July 22nd. Um, and then we've got a special interesting one, uh, Danica Rainey, uh, who is president of the, uh, or, or founder of the, uh, the Asteroid Institute, is going to be giving us a talk on asteroids and um, how we can deal with uh, threats to the Earth from asteroid impacts. And that will be on Wednesday, July 29th. So um, looking forward to the next month. We've got a really uh, great lineup of speakers. I am your host, Jason Crawford. I write a website called The Roots of Progress. Uh, at rootsofprogress.org, where I write about the history of technology and the philosophy of progress. And our speaker today is Max Roser, uh, who is a, uh, an economist at Oxford University and the founder of Our World in Data, um, which I will let him uh, tell you all about. Uh, for full, in interest of full disclosure, by the way, uh, I do some part-time consulting work for Our World in Data. Um, so Max is, uh, in, in a certain capacity, my boss. So uh, Max, I'll try to make you look good here today. Uh, we're gonna, I'm going to interview Max for about 40, 45 minutes. Then we'll take some questions from the audience. And uh, at the end of the hour, we'll say goodbye to Max. But we are going to hang on for anybody who has questions about the high school program itself. Uh, Progress Studies for Young Scholars. Uh, Matt Bateman, who uh, runs the program, will be staying on to uh, answer any questions about um, the course, what it's like, um, uh, time commitment, any, any questions you might have about that. So if you're interested in the course, um, please hang on after the end of the hour. All right, uh, let's dive in. Max, uh, thank you so much for taking the time and joining us today. Thanks a lot. I mean, I don't have a real choice. Like in the end, you are kind of... Uh, <laughs> my boss when it when we are honest about it 
<laughs> All right. So, um, Max, uh, I'll just ask you to start by um, explaining. Uh, can you explain the term and introduce the concept? What is global development? Um, what I think the idea of development is, is, is to make progress against problems. Like if we go back into to our history, basically humanity has always battled the same problems. Um, kids died early, people um, remained hungry for much of the, uh, of the year, lived in uh, poor conditions, um, and lived in unjust and, and, um, and unfair um, political environments. And these, these problems aren't new, they are as old as, as our species. And I guess development really means to study these, pro or like to make progress against these big problems that we always faced um, and that we also face today. Um, and then global development comes from the fact, I think that many of the lessons that are learned in one place can be applied elsewhere. So that if one place pushes forward in a particular, uh, against a particular problem, then others can follow. And so it has this really uh, global dynamic um, of, of moving forward against these problems. Great. And uh, for the audience, introduce uh, our world in data and maybe just tell a little bit of the, it's, it's a great story of how you, how you created this and, and how it's grown into what it is today. Well, yeah, the, the story of it is, is kind of my own story of like realizing how, how wrong I was about many of these uh, big, pro big global challenges. Um, when, I, when I first uh, left school, went to uni, I studied philosophy and geoscience. Um, and was probably as pessimistic or more pessimistic and more uninformed about the world um, as everyone else. And I had, um, I, I was thinking that poverty is on the rise and, and hunger is on the rise and, and maybe health is getting worse in, in the modern society. And it was really then during my studies much later that I realized how wrong I was um, in many of these important aspects. And then well, I realized that not, not just me is wrong, but pretty much everyone around us is wrong. And that gave me the, the impulse to, um, to research that more deeply. And that was maybe like 10, 15 years ago. Yeah, more like 15 years ago. Oh my God, time flies. And um, initially I had the idea of, of writing a book. Um, but fortunately, I never got there. I think like the, the web is really the place where where you can spread ideas and research and where you can communicate with, with a much, much bigger audience and where you can collaborate with a, with a much bigger network. I mean, that's the, the way that the two of us um, um, got in contact. Um, but our world in data has the, like the core mission of it is to present the research and data on global problems and importantly, how to make progress against these global problems. So we bring together vast amount of, of data and research, and we study poverty and education and health problems and violence and war. And for each of these problems, we try to give a big overview of, of the best data and study whether we are making progress or not. Um, and, and if we make progress, we try to understand how we make progress so that we can um, push further against the problems that we're still facing. Yeah, and so the site for uh, just for everybody is ourworldindata.org, and it's a great resource. Um, um, 
So you mentioned you came into this very, you know, or you started out with a pessimistic view and then you were turned optimistic. This reminds me of something that you've said about our world and data um, is that uh, have a kind of a reputation as, quote, the good news guys. Uh, just say more about that. <laughs> what does that mean? Not even, like, I mean, I always struggle with these terms optimism and pessimism because I think they're not really used in a very clear way. Like in the end, I think I'm still somewhat pessimistic. Like that's maybe just a bit my nature. And what, what has really changed is that I became more fact-based and more evidence-based in my understanding of the world. So if I look forward, like I'm, I'm pretty concerned about many big challenges that, that, we, that we are facing. I'm, I'm concerned about the pandemic, about uh, climate change, about nuclear war. Um, but it's a different perspective if we study the evidence over the last decades, because there it is just very clear. And to me, often very surprising um, that we are actually making progress against these massive problems that we are facing. Um, so I don't think there is necessarily like an optimistic or pessimistic take to it. Um, it's just that we're, we're trying to, to present the data, but the evidence for the last decades is in many important aspects, one of, of large global, uh, progress. So maybe the right way to think about it is if, if someone would have predicted the last four decades in the 1970s then that guy would have been called or, or that girl would have been called a crazy optimist. Um, back then, the, the, the predictions were that there would be large scale famines in, in Asia, that uh, the population would explode and, and uh, we would run out of resources, um, that people are destined to a life in, in poverty. And then the last four decades were a time in which we made massive progress against global poverty, against global hunger, um, against early death. So one, one aspect is the fact-based view that in many ways we did a lot of progress and the other aspect is um, what lies ahead and what, um, what is waiting for us in the coming decades. And I guess I'm relatively pessimistic. Um, others are more optimistic and the point of, of uh, a fact-based uh, discussion is just that we, we start from the facts rather than just from our gut feelings. Yeah. What do you think people, you know, if, 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 did we just get lucky in these last four or five decades that we had all this progress instead of, uh, you know, more global catastrophe? Or do you think, or was there something that, that most people were missing in the 70s that made people more pessimistic than the reality turned out? Um, I think a bit of both. I think, I think we could have been much, much more unlucky in terms of uh, nuclear war. Like I think that was a big there was a big chance for for a massive um, there were several close calls um, I think in in this respect we were lucky I think in other aspect, aspects we've just been too pessimistic about others on the on the planet like about other people I mean people are all facing the same problems that's what I said at the beginning and we I think often underestimate the capacity of others to solve problems. It's like a very common finding in psychological research that people are very optimistic about their own uh, capacity to solve problems and about their own um, purity of the heart and, and goodwill and are often looking down at others. And I think that was also true um, for, for, the, for the global picture over the last decades where we just underestimated the capacity of um, 
the worst of, of nations to really move forward and make progress. That reminds me of one of the most fascinating charts to my mind on uh, our world and data, which is a chart of um, how, how happy do people report they are versus how happy do they estimate their average countryman is. And basically exactly. everybody thinks that their country is less happy than it is. <laughs> yes, right? exactly. Yes, like, Every, like there's, this, there's this like, I mean, that's often called um, personal optimism and social pessimism. I think that's a like a very insightful finding and, and you have it when you look into happiness research, you have it when you look into the capacity of for problem solving, you also have it in, in terms of the contribution to make, prog uh, to make progress. Like if you, if you ask people in a household what share of the household each, each household member does, if you sum up the total, you get to 200, 300%. So, and that's of course, because everyone overestimates their own contribution and, and underestimates the contribution of everyone else. So it's, it's just, and I'm <laughs> like a, a, bit of, a bit of a sad fact about our species that we don't have the same picture of others that we have our, of ourselves. Yeah. Um, I, I see a question from Matt Bateman, uh, who's, who, who's uh, with the, the program. Uh, and, and I actually like this so much as a follow-up question. I'm just going to ask it now. He's, he's asking, to what extent is this over-pessimism a data problem? And to what extent is it like a mindset or philosophical problem, having the wrong framework? Um, and, and what's the relationship between those two, between the data and the, the sort of the, the philosophical framework, perhaps? Yeah, that's a good way of thinking about it. Because I do think that all of these aspects that we just spoke about are just part of our um, psychology and there's nothing new about them. That's just what we are born with, um, this, this kind of outlook. And so I think data is, is, is just so important because by default, we are so easily wrong, right? Like we need the corrective of evidence against, um, against our lazy, biased um, mind that, that otherwise misinforms us um, about the world around us. And that's kind of what I also mentioned at the beginning that I don't see our role as like spreading optimism or pessimism. It's more like we're presenting the fact and facts and in many aspects, they are just um, very contrary to, to what we are inclined to believe. Yeah, yeah. Uh, no, no, like the other way to think about it is, I mean, it's just, it's just so easy. Like if you look at, at much of the media, it's just so easy to get people worried, to get uh, people talk badly about their fellow countrymen, about uh, immigrants, about people in other countries. It's, it's extremely easy to, to make uh, people worried um, and, and uh, despaired. Um, and it's a much harder job uh, to, to give an evidence-based fact, especially if that evidence is optimistic. Like people are often mistaking pessimism for depth mm -hmm. and that kind of and that kind of um, um, benefit you just don't have if you're talking about positive developments it's it's really funny that people seem sort of um, like biased against good news in a, in a certain sense right you would think that like you you just naively you would think that um, the, the cognitive bias would run in the other direction, right? When it comes to people's personal lives, right, they're kind of, they'd rather hear good news, um, but somehow about the world, people are not inclined to hear it. 
exactly it's like um, we're coming back and yeah. again and again to this kind of dichotomy between personal optimism and and social pessimism like if you if you would produce a website that would flatter everyone i don't know maybe horoscopes or something do that um, then people <laughs> just love it and and um, take it as as the truth um but if you're trying to convince others uh, if you try to convince people that others around them are actually sometimes moving things in the right direction then people are um having a hard time um falling in love with your work <laughs> so so how do you integrate both both data and narrative in sort of your research and and in writing this is a thing that i think our world and data does really well actually is that the entries have you know both but there's both there's a story there's kind of a uh right a, a framework there and then they put those but it's also very data driven how do you how do you put those two together and maybe not have either one drive too much if you know what i'm right what i'm asking um I think at the heart of it is is really trying to like every time when you write to make clear to the reader that what you're talking about is the lives of individual people that this data like data often feels very abstract and very detached from reality but in the end it's a much more much closer to reality it's it's a much better understanding of the world around us than single stories um and you have to kind of get across this sense that if you're talking about percentages and millions and billions um you're actually talking about the individual lives of people and i think that can be easily forgotten by the reader but if the writer forgets that this is the fact then then there's no hope that you can convey the importance of the data and uh you can you cannot convey that it's actually um talking about the lives of 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 real people so i think that's more important than than in any other writing that you that you keep on emphasizing that um that's interesting it reminds me of um steven pinker's point that the data driven perspective is actually in a certain sense even though it feels less emotional uh and maybe less uh has less warmth and compassion it's actually in a certain sense the most moral perspective because it's the only perspective that treats every life equally exactly. rather than just the one that you happen to be telling a story about right now yes i think there's like there's a like a deeply ethical um framework baked into um into looking at looking with data at the world that's right yeah um when i asked uh on on twitter for suggested questions uh i got a reply from paul graham um so i can't not ask these questions and they're actually really interesting questions uh three of them so first off what do you wish that you could get n good numbers about that you can't currently oh that's a big question um i think one aspect i mean to stick to something very concrete would be evidence on on um, educational quality like educational outcomes around the world i think we've seen over the last two decades a lot of progress against um, global health problems just because we have such good data or so much better data on global health and that made it possible that um, research and, and science uh, just became much better um, and i think that's really lacking in education where we don't really understand very well 
what kind of educational systems uh, lead to positive outcomes. We don't understand the differences between countries um, very well. We know that the differences are very large. Um, so there should be a lot of scope for, um, for global development so that uh, countries with poorer education systems should be able to catch up to the best education systems. But the lack of data is really um, an obstacle in, in, in making progress against poor education. I think that's a very concrete one. More broadly, I think it would be data that is very hard to imagine how it would actually be measurable. I mean, not everything that's, that's valuable for us is, is measurable. I think that's important to remember. I mean, like, if you, if you think about the kind of um, motivation that the two of us have for, for our work, you um, here in your course and, and on our world data, we have this kind of mindset that we want to convey the, the idea that it is possible to make progress against problems and then that that is important um, for, for young people and for everyone to have so that we, we can make more progress. But we don't have a ton of evidence on that. I mean, we don't really have a very good understanding of which societies have that kind of uh, belief in, in, um, in, in the fact that progress or in, yeah, in, in making, we don't know how, which societies have that belief that it is possible to make progress, right? And we don't have the understanding even on the individual level. So aspects like that, this kind of um, problem solving capacity and, and mindset, where that comes from and how to nurture that, that's a question that we could study if we had data, but it's, we're very far from it. Can you get that kind of data through polling? I mean, they, people do polls, right? And some of the data, some of the our world data, data is it comes from that, right? Like 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 the happiness surveys and the loneliness things. Yes, I think these are like. I mean, we we can get close to it, but even the happiness data. I mean, it's it's surprising how much it tells us, but surely everyone would would um, agree that it's an imperfect measure of of happiness, really, right? So I think yeah. um, better data on these kind of cultural. Um, personal um, beliefs that could be very valuable uh, for figuring so, out whether the efforts of, of us are, are having fruits or not. Yeah, somebody in the chat is mentioning the World Values Survey. Yes. Like, is that helpful there, here? Yes, there is, like, there is lots of, of research on that. Um, but I think to... I mean, you could... I mean, the World Value Survey on, 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 on happiness asks if you imagine a letter from 1 to 10 um, and 10 would be the best possible life and 1 would be the worst possible life, on which, ladder, on which step of the ladder are you? And people give an answer and this answer correlates with lots of other aspects that should be um, telling about, about people's happiness. Like if you ask, for example, their close friends and relatives, then they give a similar um, answer to the people who were surveyed, if you um, study the brains of these people, if you study the, um, the impact of personal life events, then it all correlates with, the, with this measure. But still, like, people would not really um, believe that we get a very comprehensive understanding of happiness from, from a, in the end, rather crude question. Um, and, I think, and I think there we could make a lot of progress. Another very closely rated one would be mental health. Mm -hmm. I mean, mental health is a 
we have an entry on our world in data on mental health just because we think it is such an important problem, but the data is, isn't great. I mean, we, we, we are lacking lots of evidence from uh, countries around the world on mental health. Um, and I think if we, if we had a better understanding, that would be the starting uh, stone for, for, uh, for making progress against it. And I'm skeptical about, about some of the, the global data that, um, that is currently available where it basically suggests that um, mental health problems are similarly large in, across the world but really like studies that, that look in more depth in, in poorer places in the world find that um, mental health problems are just very common in, in the poorest places around the world. And just the lack of data means that we, we don't take this problem of, of uh, mental health problems in the poorest parts of the world very seriously currently. Hmm. Wow. Second question from Paul Graham. What data has surprised you most since you started doing this? At the beginning, just about everything. <laughs> like, I mean, that's the fact. I think for most people that, that don't look at that data, it's, it's very easy to be, be wrong. And, and only once you start looking at the data, you get an understanding. And just because of your mind's biases, many of these facts are surprising. Um, I mean, more recently, I think I was... I'm pretty surprised by the data on the coronavirus pandemic. Um, I was expecting that there would be cross-country differences, but I wasn't expecting that they would be so large so very early into, in the pandemic. Um, and I think that goes in a couple of directions. I was, I was, I'm surprised to see how, how much progress in the end um, European countries have, have made against the pandemic. I was not as optimistic in in March and April. Now I just came back here to, to Germany. Um, uh, my, my mom uh, had to go to the hospital, so I came back uh, just now um, and moved from, from the UK here to Germany. And I, I couldn't believe like just how very different uh, these two countries are that are so very close together. Um, Oh, the UK is still very much in lockdown. Life is, is still um, very difficult. Um, the, the pandemic is still very much dominating all interactions. Um, and now um, here in Germany, the, the case numbers are very low. Um, and, and life is almost back to normal here. Um, which I found extremely surprising. And it's just the outcome of, of a couple of uh, weeks of diverging uh, developments. Um, and that's, that's probably something I hadn't expected at the beginning of the pandemic, that this would be so clear so early on in the pandemic. Huh. Wow. Okay, so the third question from Paul Graham is a follow-up. And this is a very Paul Graham question because he likes to uh, find the experts who are on the edge of interesting fields and then probe their intuition. Um, that's how I interpret this question. How he phrased it is, have you been surprised enough by the data to be able to predict where more surprises might be if you dug into that data? Well, that's such a great question. Um, probably the environmental aspects. I hmm. think that was often very surprising for me because much of the opinions that you hear on the media and sometimes also even from environmental activists aren't very well backed up 
to to put it mildly by by the science and the evidence and then it's a like that was often very surprising for me so the more you dug, you dig into environmental research the more surprised you get for example maybe one of the latest um that we looked at at in in our world in data is is land use um like the 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 land that humanity uses is is incredibly large like we are using about half of the world's um arable land for for agriculture um and the impact of that land use on the environment around us is of course massive it's the reason why we're losing biodiversity um at a at a fast rate um but it's not very much a topic that we hear about in the news ever um and possible solutions against this this massive land use are also not very commonly discussed i think um for example one one way of course in in making progress against this extensive land use is to use the land more intensively and that means using more fertilizers um breeding better crops uh possibly with with the help of uh gmo and i think there in in these kind of aspects there's often like quite a big contrast between what very vocal environmental groups um uh demand and what the evidence suggests would actually be most helpful in in uh, protecting the environment. Oh, interesting. Are there any other examples in that category? Oh, lots. I mean, I'm I'm calling now from Germany as I said. Here we gave up on nuclear power. Um that meant that it was partly replaced by coal. Um and that of course is is a has has a massive impact on on the health um, of people here in Germany and around the world um air pollution is is a is a killer of millions every year but it's not it's not a topic that again uh makes the headlines the nuclear catastrophes these single events of of chernobyl or fukushima they make the headlines they stay in uh people's minds for for years or decades and in the end uh led to the death of of nuclear power here in in Germany but um coal really just kills a way larger uh, number of people around the world and shortens the life of of many healthy people um but it isn't it, like it isn't a, a captivating event that happens um at a particular day and makes the headlines on the following day and is a much more silent um killer so we gave up nuclear for partly for coal and 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 suffer the consequences from it without really um addressing it and and discussing it more more widely yeah speaking of air pollution um we had patrick collison on here a week or two ago mm-hmm. one of the issues that he has drawn a bit of attention to recently is uh some evidence of relationship of air pollution to uh cognitive effects Uh do you know anything about that and what is the what is the data point to? Yeah, like I think that's that's one of these relatively early uh studies but um I think it's like the 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 earliest research is is quite strong that that the impact is is big on on cognitive uh capacity 
And that just comes in addition to um, the premature deaths that are caused by air pollution. Um, and not much of it is really discussed in the public, I would say. Um, and I think it's one of these possibly relatively low-hanging fruits for, for, making, um, for making further progress in the, in the years ahead in, in countries uh, that are very poor. A massive environmental problem is indoor air pollution. That's a problem that few people in the, in the rich world even know about. That's mostly caused by uh, the burning of, of solid fuels, so wood, dung, um, and the absence of electricity and, um, and liquid fuels. Um, and it kills, I guess, like I have to look at the numbers now, but I think it kills still probably um, around two or a bit more million people every year. It's, it's mostly harming women that are staying at home um, cooking. It harms children that are um, in the smoky houses and huts and are breathing in the, uh, the toxic fumes from, these, um, from the burning of uh, solid fuels. And it's a, it's a problem that we very well know how to, how to solve. We, um, we have discovered electricity quite a while ago. Um, but because it's maybe not as captivating as other global problems, um, we, we neglected making progress against it. I'm going to keep asking you questions for another five or 10 minutes here, and then I'll open it up a little bit and, and start uh, asking some questions proposed uh, by the audience. Um, folks, uh, please go ahead and put questions in the Zoom chat here. And also, uh, again, I will re remind people that just at the, at the end of the hour, uh, we'll say goodbye to Max and, um, and to me, actually, but Matt Bateman will be staying on to answer any questions about uh, progress studies for young scholars, our uh, online high school uh, summer program. So, uh, Max, uh, let's talk a little bit about coronavirus. Uh, the whole Our World and Data team pretty much, um, both on the research and the technical side, has been really focused on uh, helping the world understand the coronavirus for the last, uh, gosh, it's been about three months. Um, and, and I know because I've been on the inside working with you and the team on this, everybody's been working super hard and, and have created a great resource um, for, for, for the audience, by the way, it's at ourworldanddata.org slash coronavirus, and you can see a whole um, uh, data dashboard and a lot of research that's collected. Uh, Max, tell us, just say some things about, like, what's the, uh, so many people have been, you know, there's been all sorts of charts and data and dashboards going around. Everybody's been trying to pull together data to understand this, uh, this phenomenon. Um, but, like, you, I know you've got some very strong opinions on, like, what is the right way to use data what are people getting wrong about how they use the data? Um, and, and what's the right way to use data to understand this pandemic? Right. Let's get to it in a sec. Like I just pulled up our word in data and looked up the figures for indoor air pollution because I was speaking. Oh yeah, go ahead. So I was again too pessimistic. It's 1.6 million people that, that are still dying from it um, every year. It's, it's of course declining, right? Indoor air pollution as a problem, but we could okay. make much further progress. Let it be known um, for the record, even Max Roser, can overestimate the, uh, <laughs> the, 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 the where we are today. Even, even Max is insufficiently optimistic. Yes. Okay, great. So, um, okay, so coronavirus. Um, coronavirus, I mean, I think it got a whole lot better over the course of the pandemic. Very early in the pandemic, I was, 
I was like, I was furious. I I thought I was very, very frustrated by by how poorly the reporting on the pandemic was. I think one of the big mistakes early on was to report these uh, report single numbers for particular days, where the BBC or the Guardian or the New York Times or any other, even the most um, prestigious news organizations in the world were just reporting the daily counts, 20 deaths today or 40 cases um, yesterday. Um, and I th thought that was entirely the wrong way of looking at it. It was always about the growth rate. An infectious disease is, isn't threatening because of the numbers, it's, it's threatening because of the potential to, to spread and, and to grow. And very early on, I think that was a big neglect in the reporting and discussion of the pandemic that we didn't see the importance or that the media didn't see the importance of talking about growth rates, which is often a prob uh, problem with reporting on global health. Like it's the same with uh, reporting on, um, on poverty and economic prosperity where um, sometimes it's countries remain poor for a long time but if the growth rate is is high um, and and stays high, then you get from very low numbers to very high numbers uh, very rapidly, and you miss the story if you're just reporting on on the level of um, prosperity and if you don't miss uh, if you don't uh, talk about the growth rate. So it's I think it's it's very often uh, um, uh, a um, a big problem that we talk about the level and not the rate of growth. Um, and more recently, I think one of the frustrations and one aspect where we try to counter the narratives of it is that people either look only at tests or only look at cases and case counts. And really the most helpful way to look at it is to look at the testing relative uh, to the case counts. Because um, for example, the US and the UK, the two countries that we know very well, um, they had for a very long time a much higher rate of positive um, cases, much higher than the European countries. And that suggests that the true number of, of cases is much higher than the confirmed number of cases. Um, and I think that story was often missed by focusing only on the amount of testing. I mean, your president is is um, is quite prominent <laughs> in his role of of only emphasizing the number of tests, um, and the number of tests has to be high if the outbreak is large, but it can still be insufficient, um, and that is only becomes visible if you if you look at the ratio between uh, testing and and uh, cases. And that's also, I mean, you know it, we, that's also where we uh, put much of, of our um, effort. We, we built a global database on, on testing for coronavirus um, just for that reason, because we think that the case counts that are reported from different countries only make sense in the light of um, the taste testing uh, data. And so we spend a lot of effort in bringing this global testing database together. And it's like paid off for sure, like the WHO uses it, the OECD uses it, the uh, World Bank uses it, lots of epidemiologists and, and also the media, of course. So I think we did the right call early on in the pandemic to, to build this database. Yeah, 
absolutely. Okay, great. Given the time, I'm going to go to uh, the, the final question that I ask all of our uh, speakers, and this is especially for um, the high school students in, in, in the audience and, and folks around that stage of life. Um, what advice that you, that you commonly hear given to, to uh, high school students or sort of common wisdom uh, do you actually think is wrong? And what would you say instead? Um, I, I know what something I, I, I have to admit, I, I struggled quite a bit from uh, leaving high school um, and, and getting into university. I, I had very little idea um, of what exactly I should be doing. And it took me a while to figure out what, what my what the right place for me is. And I think it's important to know that that's just fine. I think a very common mistake is um, to rush into something or to just fall into something that is obvious um, and go with the flow. And, and before you know it, you have a career in a field that you didn't spend a lot of time uh, thinking about before. I think my advice would be, I mean, if you, if you want to figure out which restaurant you go tonight, then you might spend 10, 15 minutes looking through Yelp and TripAdvisor and so on. That's like um, maybe 10% or so of, of the amount that you spend actually at the restaurant. So if you think about having a career for 40 years, maybe you're just fine like spending a similar share, figuring out what career uh, you actually want to, to pursue. So if it takes you two, three, four, five years, to figure out what the right place is or even longer, then I think that's just fine because the most important thing for your career is to work on a, on a big problem that you can actually solve and that is actually important to solve um, rather than being excellent at the, at the job that you, that you then have. Like if, you, if you don't make the right decision on where you focus your energy, then you can work as hard as you want afterwards you just don't make as um, big a contribution as you could have if you would have uh, chosen a, a more serious and more important problem to, to uh, focus on. Great. Let's move to some questions from the audience. I'm gonna just, uh, they're coming in on chat and I'll just, uh, I'll just ask them here. So, um, uh, and, I'm, and uh, as usual, I'm sort of prioritizing questions from our uh, students enrolled in the program. Um, uh, Juan David asks, uh, what has been the hardest thing when it comes to collecting data and taking conclusions from the data? Hmm. The hardest thing about that. I think more often it kind of stands out how easy it is. Um, like in many respects, I was more surprised how much data is available and how good the data is. Um, turns out that there are researchers who dedicate their lives uh, to, to researching all kinds of aspects, uh, whether it's air pollution or homicides in the Middle Ages or um, global poverty. And often, like, I mean, our role at Our World in Data is often to to find the research that is out there and, and uh, present it on the platform that we, we are building. And I think in, by and large, it's more surprising how much good research and good data there is that just no one bothered to, to look at before. 
That, you know, I did not expect you to say that because my impression is that the team does a lot of work to validate the data and is very serious. I mean, I've been impressed with how serious the team is about data quality, data providence, is the stuff correct? I mean, that's been maybe uh, influenced a little bit by the last few months where we're trying to do something very real time. But um, you think, is, is there a lot of work to be done in, in sort of validating and vetting data sources? Yes, I think that's entirely our main job. I mean, we have kind of two jobs. Like we have a team that builds the tools to present the data and we have a team uh, of researchers whose main job really is to decide which data sources to go with and which data sources to present. So I think data vetting and checking the quality of data and explaining and understanding uh, where the data comes from is our main job. But the fact is that we can do our job and we don't have to start from scratch. So I think um, I think it's also important to to say to say that that this data just exists and and often we are somewhat spoiled for choice, right? Like we we have different options in in many um, important aspects, and we can only vet the data and look between alternatives because because many people produce the data that we um, that we need to to understand global problems and and how to make progress against them. Yeah. Um. Another question from a student uh, uh, from Daniel. Do you think that education programs like high school don't focus enough on using statistics and data to interpret history? Um, if so, why? What should we do about it? Yes. They, well, to be honest, I lack the data to really give the answer on this question. <laughs> but my, <laughs> but, my, um, but my, uh, the anecdotes that I hear um, and also my own experience just down the road from here in my own high school is um, that we didn't see a ton of data. Um, I thought I had an excellent history teacher, but I don't remember that we ever looked at uh, GDP per capita over the last two centuries or life expectancy over the last five centuries. Like even the most basic, most important uh, quantitatively measured changes in living conditions through history. They were just not part of, um, of our history um, course in school. Um, and I think there's, there's lots of potential. Like it's also, right? Like on the one hand, that was true. Like we, we, we didn't see a ton of uh, data in the history course. On the other hand, we had um, like I, I myself, I focused on physics, maths, and uh, history. So these were like my focus uh, subjects here in the school. And in the math school, uh, two hours later, we we studied statistics, and it was like these insanely boring <laughs> um, problems that are, are ex extremely far from uh, from any problem that you would ever um, encounter. Like a machine produces. Um, wires of a diameter of two millimeters, the standard deviation is such and such, which how, how many um, nails does the machine have to uh, throw away after the production or like whatever kind of weird statistics contrived um, questions we, we discussed there. So there would be so much potential of bringing maths and, and, and history together and, and using statistics to understand history and using history to to make uh, maths more more relevant and interesting. Yeah, that's a that's a great idea. And you know, we've been doing some of that, maybe a little bit informally, but in the uh, in progress studies for young scholars, we when we do our discussion sections, we'll go, we'll learn about say the building of the transcontinental railroad, 
And then um, in, in my class, we had a great discussion about, um, suppose you were the, uh, the, the company building this or president of such a company, um, you know, how would you calculate your, uh, what your profits were going to be and your investment? How would you pitch this to investors and give a quantitative, right? Where do your costs come from, your revenues and, and so forth? So combine, I, I agree, combining that history and the quantitative can be, can be really powerful. Yes. Um, all right, another question from one of our students. Uh, so you mentioned that coal kills more people than nuclear power, but this doesn't make for a good, uh, good news story. So how would we fix or, or at least improve you know, news or the media in this way? Wow, that's the big question. I mean, that's, that's what, we're, what we're trying to do at our world in data. And um, I mean, one way to answer it is to, to look at the success that we have so far. I mean, it's like um, we have many millions of readers every month um, that come to our world in data and Many people are interested in understanding where can we make progress and um, and how. And I maybe I may I might be uh, pessimistic to to really overhaul the the media more broadly, but I think it's it's less niche than than the media um, professionals often suspect. Um, there is a large interest in, in our world and data. I would have never expected that it would become my life when I um, started out. I mean, I was hoping that it would become, but I, I didn't expect that there would be such a demand for it. Um, and so I think maybe a first step is to just show that there is interest and show how it can be done. And we're, we're trying our best in, in uh, setting an example there. Um, and then we hope that as many people as possible copy and uh, imitate what we do and, and do it better eventually than, than our world and data does it. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and, I th and, and for the audience, uh, by the way, our world and data makes all of the data and research open. Um, uh, not only is it open, but it's open in the sense that you can build on top of it. You can download the data, you can embed the charts. Um, and so I think that the first step is just sort of make it easy. Yes. Um, okay. Interesting question from another one of our students, Long. Uh, what is your favorite example of a thing that intuitively feels right, but turns out to be wrong when you look at the data? Uh, I think one... One is, if, if, I could, if I could like teach one thing to, to many people in this respect, it would be that positive sum games are real. Like it's very, very tempting to think of the world in, in zero sum games, which means that um, if someone is gaining, then someone else uh, needs to lose. So before, like if you think about it in economic terms, then before modern economic growth, um, the economy was a zero-sum game. The total amount of, uh, of goods that were produced in a year was the same from year over year, from decade to decade. And the only way to move ahead in such a, a zero-sum game was that someone else would lose. And pandemics are actually our way of, of validating this uh, theory. Um, when, when in the 14th century, the Black Death killed about half or so of the population of Europe, 
then the incomes of the su survivors um, shot up in, in the coming decades. And that was because the total amount of goods that are available stayed relatively stable. But since there were now fewer people, there was a larger slice of the cake for everyone that survived. Um, now in 2020, we don't live in that world anymore. We live in a positive sum um, world where economic growth is reality. But since we spend 99% or so of our history in a zero sum world, I think we often fall back to, to thinking in, in zero sum terms that if another country moves ahead, if China moves ahead or if Africa moves ahead, um, then we have to lose out as a consequence because of that. And that's just wrong. So it feels intuitively very right to think zero sum, but it is often very wrong. And I think often with very bad consequences that we turn against each other um, because we perceive to be in competition, competition with each other when we should actually be supporting each other because we, we could uh, grow and, and make progress um, jointly. Question from one of our students, Julia, um, and this is sort of a classic. Can data lull us into a false sense of security? Uh, you know, as we see progress, can that decrease enthusiasm for, you know, making, uh, for, for, for change? Will people just sort of settle for how much improvement we've made so far? Right. Um, I think that's, that's kind of the battle that we are always fighting. And, What's, what's hard to convey in, in global development research is that very often, like basically always, the same statistic that shows us that we are making progress is also the statistic that shows us how large a problem it still is. I mean, I think the biggest problem in the world today is global poverty. That still remains true in, during a pandemic. Um, and we've made incredible progress against uh, global poverty. But the same statistic that shows us that from when I was born, uh, the, the share of people in extreme poverty was 40% and it now declined to 10%. So that's amazing progress. But the same statistic shows to everyone that still 10% of the world live in poverty. Every 10th person um, has, has less than $1.90 per day really a very low cutoff um, for extreme poverty. And so it's, it's, that's kind of the struggle that we have to, that we have the one and the same statistic that we have to see in both, with both eyes, with the, with the perspective over time where we understand that we can make pro progress, but also um, where, where we see how, how big of a challenge uh, still remains for us. And I think if we can convey that, then we hopefully can um, evade complacency. And it's more anecdotally, it's not really the, the reaction that I often, fear, uh, often hear. Like most people that come across our work and talk about our work, get enthusiastic about uh, global development, decide that they want to um, engage there. They might uh, decide to donate money to uh, effective charity, or they might actually decide to pursue a career in, in pushing progress further. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it seems to me that, uh, like, the fact that our efforts have been working is the thing that ought to motivate people to keep 
uh, going. And, you know, <laughs> anecdotally, I, I, I don't recall hearing someone uh, who decided, who, who cared about the, the issue, but then looked at the data and decided it wasn't a big deal anymore. Exactly. I, like, it's, I, I don't come across these people. And I think overall, like, I mean, if you, if you would, exp if you would believe that the kind of pessimism is actually real, if we would actually not make progress against uh, poverty, and we would actually not make progress against um, poor health, or if you think about someone in the 15th century, where that was just the fact, like people didn't make progress against poverty or uh, poor health in the 15th century, then there's really absolutely no reason to get in, engaged in progress studies or in, in research that tries to, to push further. So I think it's only the fact that, it, that, that you know that it's possible to, to make progress that makes you care about the problems in the first place. Because yeah. if I'm some 15th century farmer back here in Germany, then I can just hang out with my wife and seven kids and, and do my best to, to get the potatoes on the table every night. Um, but I don't care much about uh, living conditions around the world because I can't do anything about it anyways. And historically speaking, in the history of ideas, there have been plenty of times when, in history when we were much, much poorer as a world than, than we are today. And people had lots of justifications for why we didn't need progress, shouldn't have any, it wasn't possible, uh, and so forth. So yeah, I don't think those things are strongly. Um, um, okay, another question from one of our students. Um, is, is the data uh, on global progress often surprising for other people to see and why is it that they're surprised you know is it is it flawed in, in education is it the media you know what, what why do people get surprised by this data? i mean I, we talked a bit about the psychology at the beginning but um and i think that's that's at the root of it but i don't think the media by and large helps i think the media has like many people in the media have this understanding that their role is to only look at things um, that are going wrong and to only emphasize um, where there's a new scandal and a new um, horrible development. And too rarely they're interested in reporting where things have gone right and where someone tried to push for a change and actually achieved it. Um, and, and another one is that the media very much focuses on single events and global progress is pretty much never a single event because it's just very easy to destroy a lot of value in a single event to have a terrorist attack or a natural catastrophe or an outbreak of a pandemic. Um, and global progress happens much more slowly over the course of years, decades, centuries. And there's never the reason, never the moment to put up the headline um, that poverty is on the decline or child mortality is falling in every country around the world. So just this insane event focus of the breaking news media means that we are much more likely to hear about catastrophes and disasters than about the slow moving uh, progress that's happening during our lifetimes. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, on that note, I think it is the end of the hour. Um, I'm so sorry we didn't get to all the questions in the chat. Thank you, uh, everybody. Um, but uh, it's time to, uh, to say thank you to Max and goodbye. Uh, if you want to follow him uh, or, uh, you know, so definitely sign up for the mailing list at ourworldanddata.org. You can follow uh, Max on Twitter. 
Uh, he's very popular on Twitter and very good there. He is Max C. Roser uh, on Twitter. And Our World in Data also has a Twitter account, Our World in Data uh, on Twitter. Uh, Max, any other um, uh, Twitters or websites or anything where you think uh, people should uh, follow you and your work? Um, I think that's, that's about it. Like I, um, I think that makes, that makes sense. Um, and I wish you all the best for, for your, for your program. Great that you're getting engaged in that and that you're interested in, in following Jason's work and yeah, uh, think hard what you, what you want to achieve and then push for progress. All right. Thank you so much, uh, Max. We'll say goodbye and let you sign off. Um, I'm going to sign off as well. And Matt Bateman will be uh, staying on to answer any questions about our high school program, Progress Studies for Young Scholars, um, our online high school uh, summer program in the history of technology. So if you have any questions about the program itself, just stay on and, uh, and Matt will be answering. All right. Thanks again, Max, uh, very much. And uh, we'll see you again soon. Thanks, everyone. Have a good day. Thanks, Max. Thanks. Let's wait a minute or a few All seconds right. for a transition, and then I will start taking questions. All um, right. Just oh, thanks, Jason. So long. So, um, just just a few words about the course. If you don't know anything about it, it's a six-week online summer course um, on the history of progress which means the history of technology, economics, um, and industry. Um, the topics covered, I think that there, there's been 10 major topics um, that we kind of decided on in the syllabus. They range from um, the development of electricity to um, transportation to clothing, textiles, um, to food. Um, it's really, it really runs the gamut. And the, the nature of the course is to look at the history of these things. There's, um, there's some reading every day reading videos content that are kind of put together, created or curated um, by us. And then there's about an hour of discussion every day. And the discussion, the, the kind of learning and discussion is really, um, I mean, it is very historical, but it's also very engineering oriented. So um, it's the, the students discuss things like, um, you know, how is it possible to create a furnace made out of steel um, also melts steel and it gets hot enough to melt steel and they kind of, um, kind of they, they really approach these things from the perspective of what were the actual problems that people were trying to solve how did they actually solve them this is not kind of primarily about the personalities involved it's, it's about what is the kind of sequence of engineering and industrial problems that we've solved as a species that have really helped us um, so yeah I'm happy to kind of take questions um, I'll be um, looking at the chat here. I think I also have the power to unmute people if anybody wants to jump in. A couple other things. The cohorts, uh, the kind of study group cohorts are about 10 students each. Um, and we have them starting about every week. I think the next one is starting a week and a half from today. I'm not seeing any questions. Wait another minute. Um, but um, thanks, Rishon, and, th and thanks for your questions earlier. Sorry we didn't get to uh, get to them, get to ask Max your questions. I thought that they were really good. 
Um, okay, well, if you do have questions, feel free to shoot me an email at m, I'll put it in the chat here, mbateman at twohigherground.com. Um, and um, yeah, hope to see you guys next week. Um, this, the, all these, all these, uh, all these speakers have been great. If you want to learn more about the course in particular and kind of why we're doing it and what it's like and what the what the underpinnings of our view of kind of education on progress studies is, you should check out the first one that we did, which was with me. I talked a lot about Maria Montessori and history education and um, why looking at the history of progress, why she thought it was such a big deal and why we think it's such a big deal, um, especially for upper school students in elementary and above. Um, thanks everybody for attending and definitely reach out if you have any questions about the course. Bye.